it's a really good example of like if you really do just put your head down and work harder than everybody like there, there's a need for that out there like yeah. somebody's gonna somebody's gonna see that value and they're gonna they're gonna offer you a gig This is A New Angle, and I'm your host, Justin Angle, marketing professor at the University of Montana. This podcast celebrates the many cool people doing awesome things in and around this community. We're all about creativity and hustle, so that's what you can expect. Today's conversation was a really special one for me. I got the chance to sit down with Jeff Ament, bassist for Pearl Jam and a Montana native. Born in Haver, grew up in Big Sandy. And I've just been a Pearl Jam fan for years, but really didn't understand the uh, the depth of Jeff's commitment to to his hometown until I moved here and learned that he was sort of the favored son of this community and ha- has a home in Missoula and is just a big supporter of a lot of things in and around town, things you wouldn't maybe know about if you weren't paying close attention. I was interested to talk to Jeff for a variety of reasons. Obviously, I've been a huge fan of his work, and I can't deny that. But what interested me is how does he stay true to his roots? How does he stay grounded as a world-famous rock and roll star who seems pretty dedicated to coming back and participating in a community like Missoula and in an estate like Montana? So I was interested in that. Second thing I wanted to explore with Jeff was how does a band like Pearl Jam stay fresh, stay at the top of their game for 25 years. What's it take to keep a relationship like that going? And we got into kind of the the, the the creative process that they go through and sort of the editorial dynamics within the band, and that was a really cool part of the discussion. Finally, I wanted to ask Jeff, he's all about work ethic and hustle. This guy is a grinder, and it, it comes through in the conversation, and just if, you know if you know anything about him. But what was interesting to me was... Once you you sort of achieve some success, he and his bandmates have been tremendously generous through the Vitology Foundation and a lot of their other sort of outreach areas. So I wanted to get into that and um, understand the thought process he goes through to help create opportunity for others to maybe come out of small towns or to achieve from their communities or whatever it is. So wanted to get into that. So it was a super fun conversation. And uh, if you hadn't noticed, we got some new sound. Jeff was very generous to donate to us his new single, Safe in the Car, off the upcoming album, Heaven Hell. So before we get into the conversation, a little bit more, Safe in the Car. So I'm here today with Jeff Amet. Jeff, thanks for coming on the podcast. Good to be here. Jeff, been a, just a huge fan of your work for a long time. Um, as we said before, you know, my one of my first formative experiences here as faculty member at University of Montana was going to the Pearl Jam concert fall of 12 and seeing your connections with Senator John Tester and, and all that. So I'd like to get into that 
some other things. But first of all, you know, how does a how does a guy from Haver and Big Sandy, Montana, kind of keep keep grounded as a rock and roll star? Uh, I well, I think being from uh, North Central Montana is. I think by staying connected to where I came from, I think that's probably helped ground me more than anything. Um, yeah. You know, when things were crazy in 92, 93, that was when I started coming back to Missoula. Um, I had a couple friends that uh, were still here from when I went to college here. This guy, Eric Cushman, and uh, this guy, Tim Bierman. Um, and it just got to the point where every time in between a, a tour leg or any break that we had, I, I was just coming back here. And it was it was hard to be in Seattle at that time because we there was no anonymity. Um, I couldn't go to the grocery store anymore without yeah. like 10 people asking me what's going on. Or, and it just, it just sort of wore me out. Like, um, I, you know, being a small town kid and sort of, sort of having, uh, uh, a different sort of energy about that sort of thing. I, I, it took me a really long time to sort of accept, uh, you know, the spirit of, you know, people coming up to you and being excited and saying things like you changed my life or those things. Like it took me, it took me a lot of years to figure that out. Um, but coming back here was, was huge and just keeping sane at that time and, and, and having a real perspective because the guys here didn't care about, you know, that I was playing big shows or selling records, you know, so. Right on. Keeps you grounded. Yeah. So grew up in Big Sandy, athletics, art, huge part of your life. Um, but one thing that stood out to me and kind of learning more about your background is y- you were working hard right from the start. Yeah, I mean, my my dad uh, my dad grew up in uh, West Central Minnesota on a dairy farm and, you know, had to quit school in eighth grade because his brothers were in the Korean War and um, he sort of had a, you know, he just, he grew up with that. So he passed that along to us. Sure. And I, I was the, I'm the oldest kid out of five. So I was uh, a little bit of the experiment in terms of that. Um, but if my dad was doing anything, uh, he always had a, he had a little 80 acre farm in the edge of town where he always had cows and pigs and chickens and grew some sort of rye or some crazy, you know, grass that we hand cut or, you know, sure. bale or whatever. No shortage um, of work to do no, every day. No, it was it was constant. And we worked on Saturdays and Sundays. And I think part of the reason I got into sports was so I could have Saturdays off. So I didn't have, have a break. Help, so I didn't have to help my dad, you know, yeah. on the farm. So, um, um, so, I, you know, it, it's it's kind of the only way that I knew how to make things happen was just to put my head down and work. And do it. So high school, basketball, <clears throat> football, big part of your life. Yeah. Was art starting to emerge as a part of your life in high school too? Yeah. Well, uh, my, 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 mom, my mom was always playing piano and drawing um, when I was growing up. And so uh, that was always just a big part of, of – uh, it was just kind of day daily activity, um, and I and I got always got it was sort of how I made my friends laugh. Like uh, I would draw some crazy picture, you know, in third grade or fourth grade, and pass it around the class, and everybody laugh. And it was sort of like I don't know. I it was sort of how I won friends over, mm-hmm. um, and so uh, you know, 
by the time high school rolled around, there was really there, there weren't any art classes in Big Sandy. And I think uh, just the way that my personality is, that's that probably had more to do with the fact that I was an art major coming to Missoula. I was like, well, there's no art here. Well, that's what I'm going to do. If somebody's <laughs> telling me that I can't do that, then I'm, that's what I'm going to do. Sure. And were you were any any music at that point in high school? Uh, I mean, I played piano growing up for seven or eight years, um, and then by the time I was in high school and doing sports, I, I was in. Uh, I think I was in band through seventh or eighth grade, and then I was in choir all through high school. Okay, mainly just to get out of study hall or <laughs> right, right. You know, whatever we're we trying to do. Yeah. So you come to University mm. of Montana in. Mid eighties, eighty one, eighty one. Are you a first generation? Were you a first generation college student at that point? Uh, Maybe like had your parents gone to my college? My mom went to college for about six months, okay. and then married my dad and started having kids. But she was in the nursing program at Northern Montana. Okay, because um, so, but but pretty much, yeah, yeah. I mean that's a that's a large <clears throat> proportion of our student body here, and something that you know I noticed right away teaching here. So many of our students are the first. It's their first point of contact in their family yeah. to a university, and that's a big deal. Yeah. Well, I think, I mean, my dad in particular uh, really wanted that for all of us. Yeah. Um, really, was really disappointed when I, uh, you know, I had to quit after two years. I didn't have, I ran out, I mean, I basically saved money all through high school to pay for my first year. Then my second year was, Four thousand dollars in student loans, which is, which is probably the equivalent of twenty thousand now or At something. Least. Uh, and I just couldn't, I couldn't see like taking out any more loans. I was like, how am I going to pay back this four grand? Like, right? Um, because my my first few years uh, in the workforce in Seattle, I was making sixty five hundred bucks a year or something like that. So, did you move to Seattle more to like get a job and make ends meet, or did you move to Seattle for for music? Uh, I moved to Seattle, uh, mostly if I'm being honest with myself, mostly because of the music. I had a friend, uh, Randy Peprock, who was in a band here who moved to Seattle and we got out to visit him. Uh, we went out to, uh, Clash and Who show and there was another band called X, a really great LA punk band that was playing that same weekend. And when I kind of saw what he had going on, I was like, wow, this is pretty cool. Like, he was working in a cool restaurant. I ended up, when I moved out there, uh, the job that I thought I had worked out didn't work out, and I ended up getting a job where Randy worked and okay. uh, just uh, super uh, hipster uh, coffee shop called the Raison Debt. Um, yeah, yeah. And it, and it was uh, everybody who worked there was like a artist or a actor or musician or all of the all of the above and. Being a kid from Montana, like it just it completely opened my whole world up. Like there was, you know, all these people that were into jazz, and you know, uh, Mark, who was the cook, took me to see Ornette Coleman, and took me to see King Sonny Ade, and took me to see King Crimson, and sort of, sort of like, I mean, I was a punk rock kid at the time, but sort of like really opened up the whole world, and I sort of realized that that music was all sort of punk rock too. Like mm -hmm. it was all outsider music, and. uh you're kind of drinking it all in through a straw and it's, it's yeah just and just and kind of uh, intimidated by it um okay i mean i was 20 at the time and i was hanging out with a lot of 16 17 18 year old kids i mean stone who i'm still you know in pearl jam with i met him he was probably 16 
and the, and those kids had all, uh, you know, they they had seen a lot more in their life than I had seen in my life, and so it was a, it was a, it was a, it was an odd thing. So like they're they, younger, but they're, they've more <clears throat> been in the scene because they've been living in Seattle, and yeah, yeah, okay. and it's sort of like you know they were more comfortable around girls, and they mm. were more comfortable. You know, they had sort of like experimented uh, with drugs and all that stuff uh, more than I had. So I, I sort of felt a little bit. Um, I felt like the kid, sure, a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Going through that at that time, I, I was actually sort of mad at my parents for a few years because I thought, wow, like they made me live in this podunk town and <laughs> and I didn't learn anything about like sure. real real living and real life and city life and and then you know by the time I was in my thirties, I was like, thank God I grew up <laughs> in Big Sandy. Like you know, somebody with the, I mean, I had a I was a pretty intense. You know, I probably would have been diagnosed as all sorts of things and put on meds if I, you know, had grown up in this right, day right, and right. age. But, um, you know, my parents, I was a handful to my parents. And I think growing up there, I could sort of like, you know, I was they could sort of manage me in a little town like that. You know, like everybody's sort of watching out and, you know, you get in trouble from the principal or. Right. You know. And a piece of that, too, like you're <laughs> a little bit older I would assume these other kids, maybe they have some help at home from their folks, but you're on your own. Yeah. You know, yeah. grinding to kind of make the rent, put food on the table. I mean, that seems like a big theme of, of your your early days. Yeah, I think, you know, after I'd been there a couple of years, I developed a little bit of a chip on my shoulder about sure, that. Sure, yeah. You know? um, and and it, that chip probably got the biggest when, uh, you know, the first, you know, band that put records out that I was in back there, Green River. Um, okay. When we split up, the scene sort of split at that point, and half the scene went with Mark and Steve to Mud Honey, and then half the scene went with Stone and I to Mother Love Bone. And uh, some Mud Honey sort of broke out before we did, and there were just some things that were said at that time about, like, yeah, Stone and Jeff just want to be rock stars, right, blah, blah, blah. Right. And so that – I always felt like that sort of put me in this zone where, like, like things were easy for me or things were given to me. And that really bummed me out. Yeah, because that's like the opposite of true. <clears throat> yeah. And, the, you know, things have come out since then where, you know, like, you know, Mark has talked about it since then. Like, well, you know, Jeff was doing it. You know, he was doing all of it. He was the most punk rock out of all of us or, or whatever. And – uh but yeah, I, you know, I and I still have a little bit of that chip in my shoulder, and, sure. I, and I think I've I think I acknowledge it and go like it's okay to use that to energize, you know, you know, a project that you're working on or whatever. But um, I gladly would have taken money from my parents to go to college and finish my art degree and whatever. But things, I think things would have been a lot different for me because because I sort of got by on my work ethic alone, like okay. like. I was, I wasn't just the bass player in the band, but I was also the guy that was making the posters and the t-shirts and talking to the promoters and setting up tours. Mm -hmm. And, and it sort of made me, it made me valuable, uh, in a group sometimes with better musicians and better songwriters. And, uh, you know, it's, it's just a prime it's a really good example of like if you really do just put your head down and work harder than everybody, like there, there's a need for that out there. Like yeah. somebody's gonna somebody's gonna see that value and they're gonna they're gonna offer you a gig. 
I mean, and that's what, so I listened to your, you did an interview with Mike Powell a few months right. back. And, and one of the themes that stood out there is like you were doing a lot of the, the hustle behind the scenes. Like you said, doing the artwork, doing the, mm-hmm. you know, booking the venues, all that stuff. And, you know, one thing that was interesting is as these, these bands you've been in kind of emerged in the, in the pre Pearl Jam days, like going out and going after the best musicians at whatever seat it is, the drum kit, whatever. Yeah. And that, that seemed like, maybe having that ability to make things happen allowed you to go out and go after those types of partners. Yeah. And I think, you know, I, I, you know, my partner in a lot of these bands has been stone and stone's always been fearless in that regard in terms of going, you know, going and asking, you know, Greg Gilmore to be the drummer in mother love bone, who was clearly the best drummer in our scene, you know, and uh, I, you know, I've, I've, I've been so lucky you know, pretty much my whole career, like, you know, even here in Missoula, I played in a band with this guy, Sergio Avina, who was um, school. He was a jazz drummer and uh, he was really great. He was always, you know, he was the best musician in our band. And pretty much every band that I've been in, the drummer has been the best or one of the two best musicians. Mm. And being a bass player who has to be locked, you know, step with the drummer, Man, I've been so lucky because I've sort of just through being in the same room with these guys over 30 years, I've sort of become a pretty solid bass player just because I've I've played with Matt Cameron, who's, <laughs> you know, clearly one of the great rock drummers of all time, yeah. and Dave Rabrizis and uh, Greg Gilmore and Alex and Sergio, like all these guys, you know, that are, you know, you know, you, you make a list of the you know, 10 best drummers in Seattle history. And I played with four of them, you know, so. Amazing. Lucky. Yeah. 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 And so as this is starting to emerge as, as kind of your, your becoming Pearl Jam through all those sort of transitions through various arrangements, um, you know, you're not only just the bass player, but you're writing the music, writing a lot of lyric. Um, is that different than, than many bands? I don't know the typical sort of authorship structure and how, how creativity works in a band. Well, I mean, you know, when I started, I, you know, we were, I was in a punk rock band and, and here in town called Deranged Addiction. And the, the guy, the first singer in that band was this guy, John Donahue, and he was a California kid. And we started off playing covers and we were playing covers for like three or four months. And he's like, well, you guys know that this is nowhere. You know, we were like, what? Hmm. What are you talking about? And he's like, we got to write songs. Okay. And I remember, just, I remember, I, I remember the rehearsal. Like I can, we were downtown off of Main Street in the basement <laughs> of this place called Urban Renewal. And uh, I remember just going like, how do you write a song? Like, well, yeah, I, I have no start, idea, right? you know, because I, because I just been sort of copying what, you know, the bands that I loved and the bass players that I loved, I was just playing along with records. And so. I remember John said, uh, well, just pick out the two or three songs that you like the most and borrow. This episode of A New Angle was brought to you by Momentum Athletic Training. If you are in need of getting back into shape, staying fit, getting stronger, all of the above, preparing for the human race, go visit Kiefer and Rhea down at Momentum and get yourself in gear. They are the best. MomentumAT.com. You know, within a couple of months, I remember Bruce and I had both written songs and we sort of inserted them into the group of covers that we were playing. And then it was sort of on. Then it was sort of this thing like, 
I'm going to do something in the style of Flipper. I'm going to do something in the style of Black Flag or I'm going to try to write something as amazing as the Dead Kennedys who were like, if you really, you know, get into the Dead Kennedys, they were very progressive and very Mm -hmm. complicated punk rock band. Uh, So then it became like, you know, this, uh, then it became my job. You know, I was like, okay, how am I going to learn how to be a songwriter? And, and then over the course of the next, you know, few bands, I would write more in some situations, less in some situations. And then probably 15, 20 years ago, I was like, okay, I need to just, I need to learn how to write songs, start to finish, finish songs. And that's really been probably the most job-like aspect of what I do. Um, Okay. Every day you just try to go in and, you know, try to work on something, whether it's new or something that already exists. And you try to get to a point where you have a finished group of songs and either those songs, you know, get placed in front of the Pearl Jam guys or they end up in a side project or end up on a solo record or or whatever. But it's it's sort of the uh, most gratifying of it's it's the most gratifying aspect of what I do because you know now you 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 don't really know where that stuff comes from yeah because I'm not sitting down going like I'm gonna write a, a love song or I'm gonna write a song about you know social injustice or you know you just sit down and start playing and vowel sounds come out and okay and so it's, there's sort of this magical process and it's and it's and it can also be a very uh, once you get into the words or the the vibe of the song, you uh, you realize that it's some unfinished, deep weld thing that you haven't dealt with mm-hmm. in, in your life. And so it's, I, you know, I feel so lucky to have, be in this position where I can spend a part of my day every day, like just working on the, those sorts of things, these art projects that have real <clears throat> uh, meaning and and actually help me grow as a human being. And so how do you, like, <clears throat> you, you mentioned just a few minutes ago, like some of the products of that process are go to side projects. Some go, you know, you have a solo album that just, mm-hmm. just came out. Yeah, it's yeah, coming out. And, weeks, yeah. and some go to the Pearl Jam group. Like, mm-hmm. how do you, how do you kind of decide which goes where and why? I'm not sure. Um, I, you know, sometimes with the solo projects, like, it starts to feel like there's you, – you'll have this group of three or four songs that start to feel like they belong together. Okay. And so you'll set those aside for that. And then as songs start to attach themselves to mm-hmm. that group, then that becomes that. Um, in terms of what songs end up on Pearl Jam records, I don't understand that process any better now than I did 27 years ago because sometimes you think like, oh, my God, this is like – this is like cut and dry, like killer Pearl Jam song. Okay. Like, like, you know, you can just hear Ed singing it and Mike playing over it and Stone and Matt, you know, you can just hear, you can just hear it. And those the songs often when they, you get zero zilch response. Huh. And sometimes it'll be the, you know, the weird little thing at the end of the tape that it's just like, you know, me playing drums and like a little bit, you know, the most not together thing. They'll be like, oh man, that thing's cool. Let's work on that. You know, this this last few years, there's been more uh, sort of pairing off with each other and 
sometimes if you can find one other person in the band that um, can champion your idea yeah. and maybe even contribute to that idea so there's more sort of co-writing going on, uh-huh. I think that gives the song a better chance of being considered. That makes, that's so interesting. That's yeah. like editorial process within it's, your own group. It's crazy. It's, I mean, you know, by the time we get down to the 10, 11, 12 songs on a record, there's probably 100, 150 wow ideas that have been floating around that we've all heard that and sometimes it's you know you know really ed has to be really excited about it because he has to go out there and whether i mean 90 percent of the time he's writing the lyrics too Uh so he has to go out and he has to be the face of that thing yeah he has to he has to you know he has to believe in the song and he has to believe in the music and you know it's hard, it's hard to, you know, sometimes the thing that I believe the most in isn't necessarily the thing that he most believes in. Sure. But that's sort of what makes it a band and makes it interesting is that everybody sort of, you know, you can come in with a real definite idea of how you want the song to be. And once the band gets a hold of it, it's not yours anymore. It's yeah, like, yeah. It's the and having the it, sort of courage to yeah. allow that to happen. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. It's, it's I mean... It's fun, especially that after all this time, it's still like a great mystery. It's just this big mystery. You I mean, know? you guys obviously have to deeply respect each other's kind of artistic uh, contributions enough to keep it going. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's well, well, and I think we, I think you know, everybody's pretty driven, you know, on the side of Pearl Jam. That I think even just witnessing that, just how. You know, Matt will be out doing the Seth Meyers show and Mike's got, you know, flight to Mars and he's got, you know, everybody's sort of got different things going on. It's, you know, Ed will write a great song for a movie. And and so you, we sort of witness each other, you know, working, you know, yeah, everybody's, yeah. everybody's working to kind of be better at their craft. And, and I don't think it's easy for any of us still. You know, I think it's I think now we have enough skills that we can we can move through something better than we did 25 years ago but it's it's still like it's still work and i think that's that's sort of kept the band alive you know that's kept it kept us interested creatively in each other and 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 then that mystery of not knowing what the next record's going to be because like i said we don't some bands will like have a press conference and say like our next record's called this and it's going to be about this and it's, you know, and they haven't written a note and we're, we're the opposite. We're, we're waiting for it to come out of the ether and right. like, what's it going to give us? And if you were a religious person, you'd be, you'd say you're waiting for the hand of God to touch <laughs> you and, and, you know, let you create this stuff. And that's sort of what it's like. It's sort of, and that's, that's the beauty of it. That's uh, like, it is the thing that sort of makes you believe in some sort of a God that just the magic of like where does that stuff come from and it's uh it's i mean i'm so fascinated by people's processes and and in particular you know artists process like what what drives them and where does it come from and what do they do to get themselves in the environment to receive that and and create i, I think i just think it's like one of the I think it's the best thing in life that life has to offer, you know, like that, where does that, you know, what, what makes, what drives people to, 
run a hundred miles or sure, you know, well, like, and the, the courage to kind of go into something with no idea what's going to come out. Yeah. I mean, to me, that's the excitement of anything creative. Yeah. It's just not knowing, not knowing what the end point is. Yeah. And, and not knowing if like, wow, this, maybe this is going to be it. Yeah. You know, maybe, yeah, maybe, yeah. maybe, and not even that the wells dried up, but maybe like the, the understanding that you have collectively, you know, you always, I always worry that at some point, is that going to, something going to get out of balance and is that going to be gone? You know, is somebody, huh. at some point, does somebody not respect you or do you not respect them? And then, the, and then the thing is broken. And, you know, when people ask me why, or how do you, how do you guys stay together? I'm like, I have no idea. Hmm. I mean, why do you, you know, why do you end up with like your... Yeah, why do marriages you, stay together? Exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Or you look at a couple when you first meet them and you go like, that's the all-time couple ever in the world. And three years later, they're, it's in the, they're in the most heinous divorce or right. whatever. And so... Although I think it goes back to a point you've made a couple times in that you know, all you guys are working on it. Yeah. You know, and, yeah. and relationships the same way. If you're yeah. not working on it, it, it yeah. can suffer and die and, and or get really sick. Yeah. So I want to make sure – I want to be respectful of your time, but I want to make sure we get to a couple things that I know are important to you and are important to kind of this community. And a big part of that is your your philanthropic commitments to Missoula and Montana, uh, Missoula Food Bank. I think the – was it the 2012 show? You guys made a huge donation to the Pavarella Center and mm-hmm. the new location. Mm-hmm. Um, but Montana Pool Service and your commitment to helping build skate parks – throughout the state, throughout the Pacific Northwest. Uh, can you talk a little about that a little bit? Uh, well, the, when when the band first started doing some philanthropic stuff, uh, we did some shows in Seattle probably mid-'90s, and we decided that we were going to give all the money away from the Seattle shows to organizations that people in the band uh, supported. That's just to interject. Like That's a huge commitment yeah, financially, but also, I mean – as a band, like it's not just the five of you; it's the whole structure that goes yeah. into the shows, the production, all of that. Yeah. So that that's a pretty huge commitment. But it, it, it there was sort of some excitement, and you know, like I mean, and up to that point, you know, any time that you're uh, a money making organization, there's people hitting you up for, of course, you know, and especially uh, nonprofits, and you know, so many people out there doing like really great work for nothing and uh going you know existing paycheck to paycheck but we sort of opened our doors a little bit to that and uh with nicole vandenberg who's who runs uh, the vitality foundation for us um she sort of vets uh you know everything that comes in to us and then and it got to be fun and then and then and then i remember those first shows like i think i gave my money to the seattle center skate park uh-huh and then I gave money to uh, Bailey Boucher, which was um, uh, uh, hospice for AIDS patients um, mm-hmm. who I, I'd worked at the that restaurant Raison Debt and had lost a couple of people that I worked with um, to AIDS. Yeah. And so I just I felt a connection to those things. And and that was sort of the that was sort of the beginning of it. And, um, you know, uh, you know, coming out here. uh you know, if you go to a Christmas party or you're hanging out at the coffee shop or whatever, you just end up developing these relationships with people that do such great work. And, 
you know, I ended up being friends with people that worked at Blue Mountain Clinic, which is also one of the first, uh, I think one of the first Missoula shows that we did. We gave some money to them when they were rebuilding their clinic after it got bombed in early 90s. Uh-huh. Um, and then that, you know, that turns into the food bank and Pavarello Center and the Zach. And there's just so, there's just so many organizations in town that are doing great work. Um and it's part of the reason that I came to, you know, when I first time I came to Missoula when I was like a junior in high school, I there was like that sort of hippie blue dot element mm-hmm. to Missoula that there was something in me when I was sixteen that thought I thought, what well, oh, those are kind of my people right there. Like okay. there's some there was a feeling Felt about at home that. Here. And um and coupling that with like just the way that my parents were growing up like you know my dad my dad like my dad and mom both volunteered you know all over town my dad was a non-paid mayor for 20 years and like (laughs) unpaid mayor for 20 years yeah worked for the city council and worked was on the church council and like helped build the church and like helped old older people in town like do remodels in their houses or help them take out their garbage or he, he was always sort of giving uh, to the community in that way. And so that was just sort of something I, I witnessed as a kid. And and um, I feel so lucky to be still in this band. And we're in some ways probably more successful than we've ever been in terms of touring. Mm-hmm. And so you, it's sort of like, you know, I decided 10 years ago, like I'm going to this thing, as long as this thing keeps going, I'm just going to keep putting – a pretty solid percentage of whatever I make into this Montana pool service foundation thing. And, uh, it'll be mostly focused on trying to build skate parks around the state, um, or in South Dakota or places where I have, uh, friends that are doing great work. Um, and then maybe that'll roll over into other things that help young people. You know, that's, that's sort of the, I think that's sort of the, the, you know, if I'm lucky enough to be here 20, 30 years from now, you know, maybe it'll be, you know, building, I don't know, a swimming pool in a small town or sure opportunities to, for young people. Yeah. And, and opportunities for young people to be active and to be outside and to be, uh, getting in touch of, you know, with that part of themselves, you know, get, get yeah. them. A, I mean, not to say that there's anything wrong with a computer screen or whatever, but just to get them, get that part of their life a little bit more balanced out. That was that was a giant part of your upbringing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, kind of no, there was no choice in the matter. But I was outside all the time, and um, and it's still like it's still where I want to be. It's still you know that's the great thing about being here in Missoula is it's you know the the existence here is sort of based on everything that this place has to offer. Like yeah, you can get on your bike and get on any number of amazing trails on any of the hillsides that surround the entire town. Um, amazing skiing and snowboarding and, you know, running, you know, I'm not a fisherman or a hunter, but if you like to do that, that's, you know, it's, it's pretty optimum. And so a lot of the, uh, my understanding is a lot of the work you guys have done with pool service has been, um, has helped nearby Indian reservations. So is there is there a reason why that emerged in your in your thinking about this? Well, you know, initially that wasn't the I wasn't going into it thinking like I'm going to go help out native people necessarily. Um, 
we were driving around the state a lot, like, you know, 10, 15 years ago. And, uh-huh. and, uh, and I would just see, you know, like I would run into a kid and say like, you know, I'd run into a kid in St. Ignatius skating and he'd be like, oh yeah, we came down from Browning. And you're like, oh, you guys skate in Browning? Oh yeah, we have a little indoor thing. We have a couple ramps, you know, at the bingo hall or whatever. Mm-hmm. So you put that away in the back of your head and you go like, well, if we get, if we get a chance at some point down the road, we'll, maybe we'll try to build something up there. And it's sort of, that's sort of how we're operating right now. Like, we built a skate park in Big Sandy seven, eight years ago. I noticed there was some native kids that were skating. I'm like, hey, where are you guys from? They're like, oh, we're from Rocky Boy. It's like, oh, we need to build a park in Rocky Boy. Mm-hmm. There's there's kids that skate up there. And so this year we're building a park in Box Elder, which is just down the road from Rocky Boy. Yeah. Um, but it's uh, it's mostly just paying attention to where it seems like there's a – you want to build these parks somewhere where uh, there's a group of kids that are going to sort of take ownership of the park and maybe take care of it. You know, mm-hmm. that's that's sort of, um, you know, it's pretty easy if you build it in the wrong place that nobody uses it and then people are just like riding their motorcycles in right, it or, right. and just destroying the place. So um, what is it? I mean, I know you're passionate about your own skateboarding, but what is it you think about skateboarding and skate parks that is a particularly good vehicle for for this type of philanthropy well uh, you know it's uh it makes me feel probably more alive than just about anything other than maybe playing music like mm. you re- I, makes me feel really in touch with life force you know like that thing that you know like the blood coursing through your veins and your heart pumping and and it's the fear and it's all of the all of the, you know like all of the things that go on with like failing and hitting the concrete really hard um i think you you know com- combining that with like it's cool now like it's actually like whatever baseball was in the 50s and the 60s skateboarding uh-huh. is right now yeah like, it's like yeah, yeah. it's like it's sort of what um kids are interested in and um I, you know i i, I feel like I'm, i've been lucky enough to to get to know some of these skate park builders who've ended up, you know, Grindline and Dreamland and now Evergreen. I mean, these are three of the top six or seven companies in the planet. Mm-hmm. And the fact that I have a relationship with these guys and they're from the Northwest um, and that I'm they're willing to come out to the middle of nowhere in Montana and to build world-class, a world-class facility in these small towns – I, you know, I, I feel like it's it's a way to sort of bring the best that the world has to offer to, you know, Box Elder or to Lewistown or these, you know, these these small towns. And it sort of lets those kids know that they're connected to the rest of the world because they're kids now. They're being reminded every day by their phones that they're that they're not as good as the big city. Sure. Yeah. yeah. And so it sort of feels like this is a way to sort of go like, actually, you know what? You have it better than the big city kids mm. because big city kid has maybe a park that's twice as big as yours, but they're sharing it with a million people. Yeah. You're sharing this park that's half as big with 3,000 people, you know, or whatever. Yeah, and, and so, kind of the message that you can all, you can do anything. Yeah. You know. Yeah, yeah. And it's it's just a huge bonus for me because I get to – I get to get in there and help design and I get to hang out with kids. Like I don't, we don't have kids. And so 
I get to hang out with these kids and find out what's going on in the world. And I stay connected to them. I send, you know, stuff to some of these kids at Christmas time. Oh, that's awesome. And uh, try to just be the cool uncle, you know, and, you know, you kind of hope that, you know, I know I didn't listen to my parents very much from 12 to 18. And mm-hmm. sometimes I was listening more to the older kid or my uncle or, you know, than I was my parents. And you just feel like maybe you can sort of guide them in a way that maybe their parents are having a hard time guiding them. Sure. Maybe you can get some message in that they're, yeah. they're just not acceptable to. Yeah. Other like you can... You can skateboard and go to college. Right. (laughs) You know, if you go to college, there's a great skate park in Missoula or there's a, you know, great skate park in Bozeman or, you know, whatever. But, um, but that, that, that part's, that part's been really fun. And, and to see some of these kids, like they could barely even stand on the skateboard and now they're just like killing it. Yeah. They got bag of tricks and got their own style because they're isolated and which is sort of the, what skateboarding was in the beginning to me, like you'd go to different towns and you'd really see these different styles and you can see that that still can exist if you build a park in an isolated enough area. So that's kind of a cool way to think about it. I hadn't thought about that. Like you, you create these parks, world-class facilities and isolated areas. And these guys are just sort of, they're not playing by any rules. They're making it up. Yeah. They're just using it. They're using it the way that, it seems to work for them. And, and if one kid gets really good and develops their own style, then everybody starts to follow that style. Then it gets really weird because then you see this group of 10 kids who are riding in the same way that isn't like any pro. Yeah. So it's, I mean, that's got to have a lot of parallels to how your, your style of music developed. I mean, you guys were pioneers with a lot of that kind of emerging Seattle sound. and Yeah. And I think Seattle, you know, in the early days was pretty isolated. Like it yeah. wasn't, you know. A lot of times bands would make it to San Francisco and they wouldn't quite make it up to the Northwest, you know, mm-hmm. so. We're getting a little bit of that now. I mean, now that Missoula is starting awesome. to emerge as a as an additional tour date for a lot of big acts. So awesome, yeah. I mean, everything that Nick's done with, well, I mean, Nick and like the uh, Knitting Factory guys, mm-hmm. like, mm-hmm. you know, they've, they're doing great stuff at, you know. And it's the perfect spot. It's like, you know, it's right between... Minneapolis and Seattle and Portland and you know a lot of bands are you know go to Calgary and Edmonton so we're just right below that so it's where I mean Missoula's in a sweet spot music wise right now yeah it's thriving yeah so we're you know this podcast comes out of a, out of a business school so I, I I would I would sort of be neglecting my responsibility <laughs> as a business school professor if I didn't ask you about um sort of Pearl Jam's taking on Ticketmaster back in the 90s. Mm-hmm. And you know, it was right after Vitology came out, if that's right, and just decided so, to, yeah. you guys are not going to sell tickets through Ticketmaster. Well, it, it was just, uh, you know, we, we, it was, a, you know, the first time that we were sort of feeling like we had some power and, and we recognized that, um, there, you know, there seemed to be a really, uh, wide gap between you know we were we were trying to keep our ticket prices low at that time we were like we're going to charge 15 bucks for a ticket and then you charge 15 bucks for a ticket and then they'd stick a seven dollar service charge on top of it we're like remember that sucks you know and it's it it hasn't gotten any better no um but uh the the problem was is that 
from the fan standpoint, they just saw the $22 on the ticket. And the, the one thing that did change when we went through that whole process was that they had to print service charges on the tickets. So any ticketing agency anywhere in the U.S., like it, it says $15, yep. then it says $7 service charge. And so at least the fan knows that, you know, a third of the money is actually just going to this service, you know. Um, but we, you know, we've, we've sort of done that all, I mean, we still, we still run up against stuff like that where you, you, you know, you, you see something that seems a little bit out of whack. Um, well, like and, all these ticket unfair. service, all these, uh, whatever, these reselling services and oh bots God. are buying up tickets so fast. Yeah. I mean, StubHub and all that stuff is just the worst thing ever. And it's, it's, it's weird to me that you see like, the biggest ads, you know, like NCAA games and all that stuff are like these StubHub ads. And it's just like, it's ridiculous, you know. And, and I, you know, every year I try to go to the NCAA tournament somewhere. I try to go to a regional or something and see some games. And uh, um, I usually end up just buying the tickets on my own. And you'll, you know, you'll spend like $400 for like a 20th row seat mm-hmm. for two games, you know. It's and, and, you know, unless you're one of the schools getting into those places, you really don't have any access to the. So I don't, I don't know what's I don't know what's going on with all that. I, I know that as a band, we've we're constantly retweaking our ticketing to sort of try to eliminate, you know, all that scalping and stuff. And it's it's impo- it's just almost impossible, like especially when you're if you're selling 20,000 seats at a show or, you know, 40,000, 100,000. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, but you, you do whatever you do what you can and you try to make sure that, you know, we really try to take care of our fan club. We try to get 20, you know, 10 to 20% of the tickets, uh, that go directly to our fans and our fan club. Mm -hmm. And And you guys have been at the cutting edge of kind of that fan club process and how to, how to try to innovate around these different, um, influences for a long time. Yeah. You know, trying to eliminate the middleman a little bit, you know, try to go directly to the, you know, the source and that. Anytime you can do that, it's and it feels better. It feels better if you can, you know, if you can go right to the store that makes the honey and buy the honey from them, as opposed to, you know, going to, you know, Whole Foods, which is a fine store, but you know, somebody's making a big chunk in the middle of that, right? And the farmer's probably getting, you know, getting the the worst deal of all. Yeah. Yeah, that's the sad part. So, Jeff, this has been super fun for me. I mean, obviously, super fan of, of yours and, and Pearl Jam and all that. Um, I'm just intrigued. One last question is you go from like playing to 100,000 people in South America a few weeks back mm-hmm. to back in Montana. Like how, how does that sort of transition from one world, one phase of your life to the other? Like how does that, how does that work out? It, you know, it's getting it's getting easier to do that. It, okay. You know, it, it it used to be when I would come off of those tours and just all that energy, um, I would have a really hard time being at home. Um, and and it's not it's not just all the energy. It's also like <laughs> when you're on the road, you're staying in hotels, and so somebody's like washing your clothes, yeah, and somebody's yeah. like the whole thing. making the bed and cleaning your bathroom and doing all that stuff. And it, you, there there was a period of a few years like. Like when I first met my wife, um, I was like, okay, I'm going to come home for a day and then I'm going to go somewhere else for three days or four days. And I'm just going to like 
learn how to pick up after myself and cook a <laughs> meal and do a few things. And then I'll come back when I have those skills back. And that's um, probably really good for your marriage. Yeah, I think it I think it was critical because you'd come home and you'd be like, you know, all over each other. Like, I've, I've been here doing this. And you're like, I'm out making the money. You know, you're yeah, 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 stupid yeah. conversations. Um, but it's, it's easier now. Now, like usually when I'm on the road, you know, I, it's, it's a grass is greener thing oftentimes too. Like if I'm here for too long, you're like, oh man, I wish we had a tour coming up or wish we were, had some studio time booked. But like, you know, halfway through the South American run, you're going like, oh, at the end of this, I get to go to Montana. Like, right, you know, right. You got that to look maybe, forward to. Maybe get a trip into Lost Trail or, you know, whatever the, you know, whatever you're hoping to do. Um, so, you know, I, usually I can't wait to get out here and, and, you know, you know, do all the stuff that I've been thinking about doing, you know, and especially with summer coming around the corner, you're like, you know, it's, it's, you don't want to be anywhere else, you know, no. even though the option is like Wrigley Field or Fenway or something, which is incredible, but like, I want to be in Montana as much as I actually want to be at Wrigley, really. <laughs> awesome. Well, that's a great way to end it, Jeff. It's great to have you here. Thanks, Justin. Thanks for your time. And yeah. it's been a pleasure. Good luck. Awesome. Take care. Okay, that was super fun. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed talking to Jeff. What an amazing guy. And just to sort of experience how how much of a down-to-earth, real person he is was such a treat. Um, so a couple things there. Keep your eye out for the new album, Heaven Hell, coming out on May 10th. And you can find that wherever you find music. But uh, I think Jeff would like you to go buy a vinyl copy because he made plenty of those. And they're available at your local record store if you can find one of those. Uh, next, if you're interested in learning more about the philanthropic efforts that uh, Jeff and his Pearl Jam bandmates are on, please check out their, their website, pearljam.com, and go to the, the, the link to the Vitology Foundation. Lots of great information there. Coming up next week, we have Eric Sprunk, Chief Operating Officer of Nike and a very proud graduate of the University of Montana and an accounting major here at the College of Business. Uh, Eric is a phenomenal guy, a huge supporter of many, many things we do here at the University of Montana, and he is set to be our commencement speaker, and I was fortunate enough to get on his calendar to grab some of his thoughts, so super excited to talk to Eric and um, get that interview out to you as soon as we can. Thanks for listening to A New Angle. We really appreciate it. Remember that A New Angle was brought to you by CED, Consolidated Electrical Distributors. They're our first sponsor, and we can't thank them enough. CED is one of the largest electrical wholesale supply companies in the country with nearly 600 locations nationwide. CED is a privately owned business-to-business company that distributes just about every piece of equipment you need to keep your lights on, your energy flowing, and your lifestyle comfortable. CED is also an important employer in our community, and they have a keen interest in University of Montana graduates. To explore career opportunities, check out www.cedcareers.com. Before we go, I'd like to thank a few folks for making this project happen. Elizabeth Willie, the communications director here at the College of Business, and then our fabulous team of interns, Michelle DeFluke, Max Gibson, and Savannah Sletton. And a special thanks to Jeff Amet for letting us use his awesome music. Finally, a thanks to my producer, Stefan Borson. Glaciers recede to your doorstep. doorstep.